We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. There is a powerful healing force that is all around you, and it's free. What is it? Nature. Other questions we'll be taking a deep dive into include, how can you ground yourself in a world that's becoming more and more frantic? How can you get out of your head and into your body? How can nature be the gateway to a more meaningful life? My witness today is Dr. Patricia Hasbach, and she is a licensed psychotherapist and college educator in Eugene, Oregon, in the USA. She's a pioneer in ecotherapy, which uses the healing benefits of interacting with nature. Her book, Ecopsychology, was nominated for the Grora Mayer Award, which recognizes outstanding ideas in psychology and makes them available to a wider audience. But today we're talking about her beautiful new book, Grounded, a guided journal to help you reconnect with the power of nature and yourself. Welcome to the program, Patricia. Why might we need to reconnect to the power of nature? Hello, Andrew, and thank you for having me. We want to think about the power of nature because we are, in fact, part of nature. We are an evolutionary species that evolved, embedded in the natural world. In today's world, where we live a much more, um, you mentioned frantic life, in much more urban setting, often very grounded in our technology and in utilizing our technology so much, we have lost touch for many of us in terms of our day-to-day connection with the natural world. And we know intuitively, and now we know through studies, that we have great healing that can happen in our time spent in the natural world, particularly when we are entering the natural world in a very intentional kind of way. So there's a great healing power. So how did you get interested in this particular area, Patricia? Well, my training was a a fairly traditional training to be a psychotherapist. And I also had a bit of background in research. But I was introduced to this emerging field of eco-psychology back in the mid-90s. And I was invited to a conference in California that was called Eco-Psychology for Educators. And it really resonated with me because it helped bring together my personal love of nature with my profession of being a therapist. And it made sense to me that much of psychology has not addressed that human nature relationship. So in my traditional training and in most therapists' training, we tend to look at human-to-human relationships. And that's what psychology typically focuses on. So when I'm teaching this subject to my students, I often use a drawing of concentric circles to say, here are the areas in psychology that we are trained to look at. So that smallest inner circle is sort of the intrapsychic. What's happening within the person that we're working with? And that next larger circle is an interpersonal circle. What are the relationships that the person is involved with? And the next larger circle is the family system. What family system did the person grow up in and was affected by? And what's the family system they're living in now? And then the next larger circle is sort of the the societal or cultural circle that, again, we are affected by and we affect. So this might include ideas of if people are affected by racism or sexism or ageism, what are the norms of a culture? And typically, psychology stops there. Again, we think about the human to human, from the inner to the intimate, to the family, to the culture. Typically, psychology stops there. But eco-psychology expands that lens one step further to the ecological. 
what is the natural world? What is the ecological world the client or the person is involved with? How much of the natural world do they interact with? So in a typical therapy session, if somebody was sort of looking down from above, would it look like a therapy session with me, with sort of people sitting in a room? Or are you out in nature? Do you bring the nature into your office? How does it actually work on the ground? Well, it's kind of all of the above. Someone who's practicing ecotherapy is doing all the same things that a typical therapist would do. Uh, many of my sessions, the majority of my sessions, particularly during bad weather here in, in Oregon in the wintertime, <laughs> we get a lot of rain, um, happens indoors. But we're utilizing the powers of nature even inside. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. How an office is designed can be so important. What the client is looking at when they're sitting and talking with you is really important. So I searched for a long time and finally found an office space that was on a second floor. So there was a lot of privacy. I didn't have to have window coverings. And when the client was sitting on the couch across from me, they were looking at a bank of windows, a whole wall of windows that looked out to the tree canopy. So they're seeing that behind me when they're sitting and talking with me. And then there's natural objects in the office that sometimes become part of the therapy session. I have a basket, I call it my nature basket, and it sits on a table that the clients can see. And sometimes people will pick that up and look at it or hold something. And sometimes if I see that someone is struggling with their words, if they're having a hard time putting into words what they're feeling, I might ask them, to take a look in that basket and is there anything there that helps them articulate what they're feeling or can show me what they're feeling? An example that I found particularly powerful was I was working with a young woman once who her parents brought her to see me. She was a college student and she had attempted suicide. And it came on the heels of a relationship that was important to her ending, and she was feeling overwhelmed by school. And when I first saw her in our first meeting, she really couldn't speak very much. She was crying and also very withdrawn. And she was one of the people that I asked if she would take a look in the basket and if there was anything at all that helped her be able to show me what she was feeling. And when she looked, she pulled out a vine ball. It was just a irregular sphere of vines that I had picked up somewhere along the way. And she said, this reminds me of my life. It's empty in the middle and it's a tangled mess. And mm. that prompt was really helpful to her to begin to talk about her feelings. So that's an example of how I bring nature into the office. I also take people outdoors for sessions. And I'm fortunate that my office is located on a beautiful river. There's a walking path that is right outside the door of the building. And we'll do walk and talk therapy out there. And there are places we can sit by the river or we walk. And I have found that to be particularly helpful when people are kind of anxious about sitting and talking one-to-one -one or working maybe with a older teenager who just sitting and talking with an adult can feel a bit intimidating. The walk and talk work can be very helpful. It's interesting you saying about teenagers. I'm in analysis at the moment and my therapist is probably 70 years old. And his career has changed and the way his work's changed is his body has changed. So when he was very young, he used to do child's therapy, sort of play therapy, but you need to get down on your knees. And there came a point where he couldn't do knees anymore. Yeah. So then he did teenagers and he said, teenagers, you want to take them out into the park and play football with them and do all those other things. And then it comes a time when you just want <laughs> old people like me who are just going to sit there and talk. <laughs> 
Well, you know, he could bring nature into his office space, much like we just described. But, you know, it's an excellent example of how we are seeing people who are doing therapeutic work, recognizing the power of nature, recognizing that often it's a way that we can meet on common ground with people from a different lifespan, age. It's been a very powerful mechanism, I think. And it also, what we're seeing is that when people connect deeply with nature, they also begin to exhibit more pro-social and pro-environmental behaviors. So I think our relationship with nature is started very early. Let's talk about your childhood and the landscapes of your childhood. When I ask you to think about your childhood, what sort of nature immediately comes to mind? Wide open grassland to run in in my bare feet. I was fortunate to grow up in a fairly rural area in western Pennsylvania in the States. And we had about three acres of property outside of a small town. And some of that had its challenges. It was kind of lonely sometimes. Um, I didn't have a lot of playmates. And I'm also an only child. So I really grew up, I think, very attuned to the natural world around me, especially when I was really young before I could engage in, you know, other kids at school and, and so forth. And I look back on that and think that probably had a very big impact on my deep love of nature. And have there been experiences in your life when nature has been very helpful in teaching you something or moving you on with something? Oh, that's a great question. Every summer, my parents would do a driving vacation across the country to one of the national parks in the West. And I lived for those couple of weeks of getting out and seeing the bigger world and experiencing the beauty and the vastness of the mountains and how different people lived. And there was this huge curiosity in my life about that. My mom used to tease me in saying, I think you were born with your feet facing west. You always <laughs> wanted to go west. And here I am living in Oregon now. I've been here uh, almost 18 years, and it feels very much like home. So the adventure of being out and expanding horizons I think was something that in a very young age and, and, and also like in middle school, early teens, was really important time for me. And what you're talking about is sort of going beyond the occasional visit to a park and actually immersing ourselves in nature on a, on a regular basis. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, that's right. You know, I think we often think about getting our nature dose you know, as any emerging field, people have different approaches to how best to frame what we are coming to understand. And in this case, the importance of nature in our lives. So some people will take more of a dosage model to say, well, we just need to get 10 minutes a day in, in nature. And there can be some benefit to that. And I think often when people are taking that approach, they're really looking at trying to offer guidelines, much like the Food and Drug Administration has offered guidelines of the numbers of fruits and vegetables that we need to get a day or what our diet needs to look like and so forth. So I think that that's the idea. But my approach is more an interaction approach, a relationship approach. Again, think about psychology and that human-to-human -human relationship, human-to-natural world relationship. It's having a reciprocal relationship with the natural world that I think is really an important piece in one's own healing, one's own well-being, and what we can offer our clients when we're incorporating that into the work we do. Because what I think nature is good for is sort of getting our ego in the right relationship with the world. So it sort of reminds us of our tininess in the infinite 
world. Am I heading in the right sort of kind of direction here that somehow going into the mountains or going by a big lake is actually more powerful than just walking around a park, which is going to be, certainly if it's a park here in Berlin, it's going to be very much more of a a smaller nature than going into the Alps, for example, which we can do here in Germany. Yes. You know, I, I think what I'm hearing you talk about in referring to is awe, the sense of awe that we can experience when we are intentional of moving out into nature or intentional about our interaction with the natural world. And there's a mystery about the awe. There's a mystery about the wild. So when we go into those big mountains or vast vistas or stand by the ocean, it's fostering this sense of humility within us. I like your idea of your your statement of getting our ego kind of out of the way and putting it in a different perspective. There's a humility about our place in the world. But I also think it can happen in some smaller nearby nature opportunities. In a park, if someone really stops and notices, how does that tree continue to stand there as maybe there's pollution around it? And how does it continue to thrive? And what's the story of the history that that tree has witnessed over the course of its life? Looking at how the birds or the squirrels or the little wildlife survives in an urban setting. There's a certain amount of awe about that too. The raindrops or the snow that falls and the intricacy of each snowflake or the sunrise and sunsets that we can witness, that when we move out into the natural world in an intentional way that way, when we invite in the mystery, it can be a a beautiful experience and, and a very meaningful experience. So one of the ideas in your book, Grounded, is to do a meditation on a tangerine. And um, I have a tangerine here. Maybe if you've got a tangerine in your house, you can stop the podcast for a second, go and get it, and you can do the meditation with me. Or maybe you can get yourself a tangerine and do it later. But I'm in your hands, Patricia. So I just put my nail into it to get ready to start peeling it. And already I'm getting really quite a strong tangy smell in my pod studio. Yes, I'm so glad you actually have one there to do this. And I'm happy to walk you through this meditation. And perhaps if some of the listeners are open to doing that, they can go find an orange or tangerine um, in their home and, and join us. But just a little bit of background about this particular meditation and why I included it in the book. We know that in our sort of fast-paced world, life can sometimes feel really rushed and out of control. And we know that a mindfulness practice can really help us slow our thoughts down and help us regain a sense of peace and a sense of centeredness. And most of the mindfulness practices that we think about are concentrated on our breath and cause us to kind of be completely present in the here and now. And that can also be a great stress reducer to allow ourselves to slow down and become fully present in the here and now. This exercise, this meditation on a tangerine, and it's based on a meditation that was originally written by the Zen master and spiritual leader and author Thich Nhat Hanh. This meditation extends the focus from our breath to our other senses of smell, of sight, of taste, and touch. So I'm going to ask you to begin with just kind of get comfortable. Sit in a place that you're feeling comfortable. If you have your legs or arms crossed, try to uncross them. And just take a moment to take a few deep Slow breaths. Noticing the air blowing in and out of your body. Now 
allow your thoughts and allow your body to quiet. You may notice that thoughts are popping in and just allow those to notice them and let them go. And as you're sitting quietly, allow your body, your back to sink into your chair or your couch. And take the tangerine and place it in the palm of your hand. And just look at it for a moment. Notice its color. Notice its skin. Notice any dimples on it. Any crevices in it. And begin to think about the origins of that piece of fruit. You might visualize that fruit still hanging on a tree. Or you might find yourself visualizing the tangerine tree standing in the sunlight. Or being showered by the rain. You might see that tangerine in its early spring blossoms giving way to tiny green fruit that swells into the ripe orange fruit you're holding. Think about the sunlight, the soil, the rain, the pollination of the blossoms and the slow growth of that fruit that you now ultimately hold and will become part of you. Take a moment. And now I'd like you to begin to slowly peel the skin from the tangerine. Notice what the flesh feels like in your hand. Notice the fragrance. Mm -hmm. Notice the mist that might burst forth as you pierce the skin. Notice what it sounds like as the skin separates from the body of the fruit. So I've got mine now beautifully peeled. It's a very fragrant um, tangerine, or perhaps I'm really noticing it in a way that I don't normally notice it because you've actually primed me to do this. I'm, I did it sort of much more intentionally. Yes. Mm. Yes. <laughs> it, is, it is a very strong smell, and the smell is all coming from the actual peel itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, and... Feel the richness of the experience when you say, I'm doing this more intentionally. I'm experiencing it more intently. So there's a richness about that, that being fully present. And now I'd like you to just break apart uh, some sections of the fruit. And notice what you notice. What draws your attention about that? I'm noticing all the little pieces of peel what do you call these little bits, the uh, the hairy bits of it? Oh, like the pith? Uh-huh. Yeah, the uh-huh. pith, that's it. Okay. And when you're ready, I'd like you to take one section and bring it to your mouth and take a slow, mindful bite of the fruit. Noticing the texture and the taste and the smell. You might feel the juice that flows over your tongue. Just allow yourself time to eat the remaining tangerine slowly and mindfully 
about what's new in terms of what you noticed about the experience of the fruit. I don't normally think about the distance it's come. I once worked on a, a radio station called The Voice of Peace, which was off the coast of Israel, and we were actually um, the tender that came out from the port of the ancient port of Jaffa, which of course is where the Jaffa oranges come from. So I was sort of thinking of this particular tangerine coming all the way from Jaffa, and it's quite a distance to come from Jaffa to Germany. Any, I mean, any orange is coming quite a way to Germany, and I don't really normally think about that. Yes. And you know what a what a miracle it is, and how many people actually have been involved in the the journey of this tangerine as well. Yes, we sometimes refer to that awareness as our ecological self. We recognize the ecological impact of all it took to produce this this food, this piece of fruit in this case. So when we think about, we take that into our bodies and it nourishes us and we're eating pieces of sunshine and soil and blossoms and um, pollination and the travel of getting to you. It's uh, quite the journey. And normally I would just knock this back in a couple of seconds as I'm sort of, you know, reading my emails or walking out the door sort of kind of thing. I'm not actually physically here with it. And this is a very good example of how we can bring the nature into our homes. Have you got any other suggestions of how we can bring nature into our homes? Yes, and that's really the purpose, um, one of the goals of the journal, Grounded, was to help the reader kind of reflect on how they might engage more intentionally with nature and form deeper and more meaningful bonds with the natural world. The journal prompts really encourage people to bring nature into the home. So a couple of examples. One is looking at our workspace. And many of us are working from home, have been working in our home offices for some period of time. And we're spending an inordinate amount of time looking at screens. A 2019 Nielsen study, and this was pre-pandemic, looked at the amount of time the average adult was spending engaged with some sort of media. And it came to nearly 12 hours a day that were engaged with some sort of media. And kids, and the average kid in America in 2016 was engaged with screens for nearly 9.9 hours a day. And only about four to seven minutes per day outside in unstructured outdoor free play. Wow. And that's amazing. So we're looking at how do we become more engaged with nature, even when we're indoors. So some ideas around our workspace, we might have a live plant sitting next to our computer screen. I have a, a lucky bamboo sitting right here by my, my computer screen. We might position our workspace so that we are looking out onto green space, having beautiful nature photographs can be really helpful. Pictures of the Alps, as you mentioned. I have pictures of birds in my office. Other ways we can bring nature in. When we are preparing meals, thinking about how do we enhance the flavors? How do we enhance taking in our meals? Do we eat them kind of mindlessly and quickly? Or do we do something similar, uh, maybe not to the degree of the the meditation on the tangerine, but what can we do to really taste our food, to really enjoy a meal, particularly if we're sharing them with family or loved ones? How do we be intentional about that? So what kind of setting do we have? Or where, where do we sit when we have our meals? What kind of conversation do we have? Or is everybody sort of on their screen or on their phone you know, eating our food quickly. So what's the norm for ourselves of how we enjoy taking in our food? What about animals? Do animals come into ecotherapy? Can you have animal healers? What do you think about that topic? Oh, yes. Animals are just 
can be enormously impactful for people. We know from studies that people who are recovering from cardiac events, when they are returning home where they have a pet, particularly a dog, where they have to go out and walk the dog, we're seeing much greater numbers of healing long-term versus those who don't return home to a pet. The rate of people recovering is much higher when people are coming home to an animal. And animal-assisted therapies are another whole dimension of eco-psychology. We're really looking and practicing incorporating animals into the healing process. Some people will take their dog, cat to their office to be with people when they're doing their sessions. Here in the States, there are certification programs to train dogs to be able to be with the therapist. And uh, whether it's visiting in the office or visiting a a care facility or a hospital. And we just find that people respond so positively to animals. In the recent um, mass shooting that we had here in the States last week at Uvalde Elementary School, there was a team that brought in 10 golden retriever dogs to be comfort dogs for the young children who really couldn't put into words what they had witnessed in that horrific experience. And for a brief moment, those children might be able to hug the dog or laugh at something that the dog did for just a short moment, a time out in their grief and in their pain. And in our own homes, when we think about our furry companions or our four-legged or feathered companions, the importance of that relationship Where else do we get that joy of walking in the house and be greeted by a dog that's bouncing with uh, joy or perhaps a cat rubbing up against our ankles and purring? Animals love us unconditionally, and that relationship is an important one for many of us. I have two dogs in my home, and uh, life would not be the same without them, that's for sure. Yes, I have a a dog too. The dog doesn't go to the therapy office very much. My first dog, when I used to work for Relate in their old offices, they used to allow the dog to be in the reception area. And all of my clients really loved to go and pat the dog, you know, at the end of the session as they went to fix the next session and pay for it in the office. But Mm -hmm. the the organisation thought it was unprofessional to have a dog there. So he had to stop going there and everybody missed him. I've never really quite understood why, you know, I thought the dog was part of the team, but they thought otherwise. Oh, that's unfortunate. So you write about how what landscape you prefer can tell something about you. Tell me about that. Well, we know that, you know, we're an evolutionary species. In other words, we evolved out of a landscape that was a typical more savanna type landscape. That's what allowed humans to survive. And a savanna-like landscape is one where there's a large vista You can see there's a place for refuge, um, a place for hiding. Often water is present. And it was the way that our ancient ancestors stayed safe. And studies have shown that people are drawn to savanna landscapes, even if they've never really lived in that particular kind of a landscape. And we see modifications of savanna landscapes in the way we design our communities. So if you think of a community where, or a home where there's, you know, a yard and a couple trees, that's creating a sense of a savanna landscape. We know that properties that have water on them or a view of water tend to cost more. People want those kinds of areas. That's another kind of example of our, another manifestation of our love of primal landscape. If we show children who have not had a long-term experience of living in various kinds of landscapes, if we show children photographs of various landscapes, the majority of kids will pick out a savanna-like landscape as one that they feel comfortable in. The thing that changes is we also, as we get older, we start to get 
familiar with perhaps a different kind of landscape. So some people are more familiar with a more urban landscape, or they may be familiar with a more heavily treed landscape because it's familiar. So our experiences of landscape can really influence our preferences. I worked with a client one time um, and here in Western Oregon, we have a lot of Douglas fir trees. So there's a lot of heavy forest here. And this particular client had grown up in Eastern Oregon, which is a high desert landscape. And it's kind of wide open vistas, sort of low scrub sage. And he was having a really hard time making the adjustment of living here in Western Oregon. And he said, Oh, it's so dark and it seems so damp. And I, um, I don't like, I don't like that. And his way out was to take hikes in the mountains where he could get up high and look out and get those big vistas that he was so used to. So uh, a landscape is important when we think about where we live and um, what we're familiar with. I spent many years living by the sea and in the middle of the countryside, and I now live in a city. And the city is a very green city. There's lots of trees. There's trees outside the front of the apartment block I live in, and our balcony looks out over other trees. So, um, And there's a park that I take the dog to and gardens, and that's lovely. But I do miss living in the countryside, and it's all forests around here, which is sort of very different from where I grew up, which was the sort of traditional English rolling countryside with hedges, and you just don't see those there. And I I do, that's the one thing I do miss about England is the countryside. There's something that sort of deeply attaches us to the countryside of our our childhood, I think. Yes, yes. I think those sense of place is really impactful, particularly if we've had a wonderful experience in uh, the place we grew up. So one of the questions I ask my clients in a first session is a little bit about their sense of place and the place they grew up. And it's one of those ways that ecotherapy might be a little bit different than traditional therapy. When we're Typically, in an initial session, we try to get a picture of the history of the client and a little bit about their family of origin. And when I'm getting that information, I will sometimes ask them to tell me about a memory they have of being in nature. And I intentionally leave it very broad. And then I might ask them what their family's um, relationship to nature was like when they were a child. And often that will spur discussion about a particular family member that maybe took them fishing or they went to the ocean or um, they did gardening together. And then I asked them a little bit about what they like to do outdoors today and how often they get to do it. And those additional little questions not only give me information that I can incorporate into our dialogue when we're working in therapy, but it also sends the signal to the client that Talking about nature is appropriate in the therapeutic forum. And often they will talk about a place that was important to them, much like the rolling hills of England that you're referring to now. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter. I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it becomes a shared space, somewhere you can tell me your thoughts and suggest ideas for new podcast episodes. You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com, so please do sign up. Details will be in the show notes. And if you go also to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, you'll find out how you can participate in the program by sending in a letter to us. And I've got one here. I feel overburdened and overwhelmed. I feel I'm responsible for everything. I warned my wife how I was feeling and to have patience with me because I might get angry, but she's not been able to support me and we just end up arguing all the time. 
We have a small baby and my wife is trying to launch a new internet business. But once her maternity leave finishes, I'll be totally responsible for money and that coming financial crisis is bearing down heavily on me. I do all the food shopping, I do all the cleaning, I do all the taxes, all the administration. I can't go on. But when I try to talk to my wife, she tells me to get a grip and I explode with anger. So any thoughts on this one, Patricia? Well, I'm hearing a number of difficulties here. I'm certainly hear a lot of anxiety when the writer talks about feeling overburdened and overwhelmed. And it's wonderful that he can articulate what he's feeling. And he's feeling responsible for everything. And I guess I would ask, really, can you put yourself in for a moment, think about what is his partner taking responsibility for? He doesn't mention a number of other areas of life that I'm wondering if his wife picks up. But my biggest concern when I hear sort of the intensity, he says, I warned my wife, I might get angry, and at the end I explode with anger. I get concerned about anger management and what's he doing to take care of himself and manage his anger. And I know I probably have a bit of a bias having been a director of a domestic violence center for six years prior to going into private practice. So, you know, when we feel so overwhelmed, so overextended, we often don't take care of ourselves very well. We don't feel like we have the time or we deserve to. And we can neglect some things that we need to be doing not only to take care of ourselves, but those around us. So being able to sort of discuss that self-care, ask that self-care question, I think is important. And it might help him feel like he has a little bit more agency around being able to negotiate what needs to happen differently in their relationship, in their home. I'm also wondering about what other support systems might be available. Are there other extended family or other people that can help, particularly when his wife's maternity leave ends, to be able to help pick up some of the responsibilities that they're feeling? Do you think um, nature might help with this feeling of overburdened and overwhelmed? Yes, I, I think it can certainly help with the stress that this person was talking about. And often stress reduction is the most common reason people will incorporate nature into the work. Because we know when we go out into nature, if we can slow our pace, slow our thoughts, move our bodies, we naturally start to decompress a bit. We can also start to recognize some metaphors in nature. As you were sharing that letter, I was thinking about the transition from couple to new baby. Mm. And that's a big transition for people to manage. And I often think it's a particularly challenging time that we have a hard time seeing beyond, that it will get any easier. And outside of my home office here, I have a, uh, a bird box hanging from a tree. And every year we get a swallow family. Three swallows come and nest there. And during the time when they're building their nest, both the male and female are contributing to building the nest. And then when the eggs get laid, Typically, the female will sit on the nest and she's really reliant on the male of flying out, catching the insects and bringing it back to her. There's also then when the baby birds hatch, then they're both frantically flying out, catching, coming back and exchanging. And others show up. Sometimes there'll be five or six birds coming to that. And I'm thinking, I wonder if there's some support system going on here. Are these earlier baby birds, you know, earlier birds from the previous season, juveniles? Are they but I really noticed it this weekend when I, I think our birds find our first brood 
probably hatched because it got very, very active um, with multiple birds coming to that. And they poke their little head in and come back out and fly away. I think there's some lessons to learn in that and kind of recognizing it's not going to always be that way. But certainly going out into nature, looking for those kinds of examples of um, relationship and examples of resilience. What is it that allows nature to withstand some of the storms? And in our relationships, those transition times can sometimes feel like storms that we have to weather, that we have to move through. One of the things I would say about anger is often, um, and unfortunately this is a thing that happens for men, is that if you're not very well acquainted with your feelings, a whole range of different feelings can come out of anger because you've actually been ignoring all the other feelings. So what I would actually encourage you to do is be more aware of your feelings earlier. So, you know, you're aware when it's panic, you're aware when it's sadness, because sometimes these feelings that are not expressed or not reported, you know, I'm thinking about the money situation and I'm really feeling I'm panicking, is actually much easier for somebody to hear than anger. It's much easier to hear sadness and all those other feelings, actually reporting the good feelings as well, because actually being aware of your feelings more will allow you to get to the point where you can talk about your anger. You know, I'm actually really beginning to feel rather angry today, and this is why is much better than holding it all in because I'm not allowed to be angry and then it all bursting out in a way that's actually going to be potentially frightening or certainly just very annoying. So I would have a look at that. Think about your relationship with anger. You know, what were the messages you were given about anger? You know, did you have an angry father? Did you have an angry mother? Think about your relationship to anger. And I think there's nothing wrong with the two of you sitting down and really having a think about the way that you're dividing everything up. And it could be that when you've seen everything, you're going to think maybe actually I'm getting, I'm getting away lightly. Or it might be that you do need to redistribute everything. But if you're coming to that argument with anger, you're just going to be met with defensiveness. If you can come at it with calmness, then it's possible that you might be able to um, re-look at it. I hope that's been helpful. Yes, I would just add to that couples communication piece is a nice, quick, but I think insightful exercise that I sometimes have my couples do, Mm -hmm. is imagine being in the other person's shoes for a day. Just imagine what your partner is doing and ask her to do the same. And that really can oftentimes foster a sense of compassion for the other person, that they too might be feeling a lot of stress during this transition time. And the other piece is being in touch with gratitude. I mean, it sounds like they're both working. It sounds like they have a new baby. It sounds like there's a lot of good things that are potentially present that we can forget about or take for granted when we're feeling overwhelmed. So allowing for the gratitude and perhaps even having a discussion like this when you're walking together outside. It's not quite as sitting across from each other and on the couch face to face. It's moving our bodies. It's pacing ourselves. It's putting ourselves in a broader perspective, which I think the walk and talk work can be really helpful for. It helps to give our issue a little bit bigger, broader perspective. And uh, it's quite a nice thing to check in. You know, here are the three things that I'm grateful for today. You know, it might be something, one thing from nature, one thing from the other person, and then one random thing that uh, you've been grateful for today. So, you know, it could be that you could be grateful for uh, Patricia's sound advice today. So thank you very much for writing in. So, Patricia, thank you for being a witness today on The Meaningful Life. I'm going to turn the tables on you and ask you, what makes your life meaningful? I know that you asked your guests that question, and it really got me thinking about how do I articulate this? How do I really frame what I feel is most meaningful, what gives my life meaning? 
And um, thank you for asking the question because it really made me focus on it in a different way when I had to speak about it. Three things came to mind. One was the love of family. My husband, my daughter, her partner, my pups, some extended family. There's this deep love there that I have that gives a lot of meaning to my life. Secondly is sort of a deep and meaningful connection with others in my work. Being allowed to walk with others on their journey for a while and having that kind of deep communication. And you actually do walk with them, not just figuratively. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I do. So there's that love and then there's the kind of work that I've been fortunate to be able to do. And finally, it's time spent in nature gives my life meaning, whether it's tending my gardens or floating the river or getting out into nature early in the morning to see a sunrise. It brings a sense of awe, like we were talking about earlier, this sense of humility, but also this sense of belonging to something bigger than myself, this mystery of the natural world, uh, this mystery of the wild. So I think those would be the things that I would say give my life the most meaning. Well, thank you very much for being my guest today. This unfortunately is where the conversation ends. But if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, we have some bonus material where I'm actually going to be um, talking to um, Patricia about how to discover your totem. And I've got some beautiful quotes from her book that we're going to share and talk about that are inspirational. So if you'd like to find out how you can become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and get that bonus material, go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, where there's the details. Or if you're an Apple subscriber, you'll be able to subscribe directly through Apple and the same for Spotify. And here come those details again. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.